This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I know that at one point in this race, late in the race, it was minus 58. And and it you cannot stop. Like if you if you stop, this is this is your temperatures that you take your mitt, your hands out of your mittens for five seconds and you you had better be getting them back in like and then it takes you so long to bring those hands back to life like you're you're right on the edge of of freezing because your body is so depleted you're dehydrated everything is compounded at those temperatures sure even on the best of days This is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Fascinating stories to amaze, encourage, and inspire you in fishing, fitness, and the outdoors. And we're brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. I started this podcast as a way to connect with my friends, people that I admire and respect, and you. It has been a learning journey that's made me a better person, a better fisherman, a better father, and a better athlete. I'm so happy that you're on this journey with me, and I'd love to hear from you with show suggestions, guest suggestions, or questions. The best way to get a hold of me is through text. You can text 305-930-7346 for the fastest response, but if you prefer to email, you can send that to podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. That's a dedicated email address just for the show. If you like this show, you can show your support by posting about it on social media and tagging me. Text the link to a couple of friends that may also enjoy it and subscribe and leave a five-star review if you feel like I've earned it. The website is tomrollandpodcast.com and that is where everything lives. All past shows, you can go and listen to any show. You can look up all the different shows that we've done, both the How To Tuesdays, the Full Links, and the Physical Fridays. They all live on tomrollandpodcast.com and the social media is tom underscore roll Roland, R-O-W-L-A-N-D, on Instagram or 
you can go to our big account, saltwater underscore experience. I hope to hear from you soon. So now let's get on to today's show. I'm Greg McHale from Greg McHale's Wild Yukon, and this is the Tom Roland Podcast. Hey, Greg, man. Thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. It's nice to meet you. Yeah, it's nice to meet you too as well, Tom. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, doing uh, doing a little research. We've never met in person, but doing a little research seems like uh, we should be best friends. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of mutual mutual uh, admiration for intense, long-distance uh, workouts, except you like to do them in extremely cold weather, and I like to do them in extremely hot weather. Um, man, I tell you what, the 430 miles on the Yukon Arctic Ultra? That's that's intense, man. That's a solo race. Yeah, that event is one of the most difficult solo races I guess I've done. I come from you know an adventure racing background, which is a team sport. But uh, you are right; we are on different ends of the spectrum <laughs> as far as heat and cold go. Uh, there's often I wish that I was down in your part of the world <laughs> right about now, and you know we're just in the thick of it in the winter here in the Yukon. Man, so you're in the Yukon all all year long? Yeah, this is home. Okay, all right. Yeah. And is that where you grew up? No, grew up in Ontario. So kind of Southern Ontario farm country, just, you know, working on the farm and spent a lot of, a lot of time uh, just playing hockey. And that's kind of where it all started way back, way back when. And how do you, how do you, uh, how do you make your, your, uh, what does a journey look like going from playing hockey uh, to having a, a TV show like Wild Yukon? I mean, that's that's a beautiful TV show. You, it's really really well done. I, I watched a few episodes uh, before we before we got here. It, very well done in challenging environments. I know a little bit about that, but it's you're doing a really good job in in a very challenging environment. And I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that too. But what's the what does a journey look like from from uh, growing up to to TV? Yeah, kind of from from hockey to where I am. Like I guess it's always athletics has always been part of the part of the program, right? And it's just once the realization that the NHL was not going to happen for a guy like me uh, at 160, you know, three pounds, <laughs> it wasn't uh, at that time. It certainly wasn't going to happen. So I had to. I switched gears to more of a, you know more of an outdoor pursuit. Because outdoors has always been part of my life. Our, you know, family holidays was consisted of, you know, going, packing up our car with our tent, and that was our holidays. Driving eight hours into the bush, and you know, with a canoe on the top of the car, and that's what it was. So that was always part of, you know, part of the life and part of growing up. And then once the realization of that hockey was not going to happen, it was full on. I need to be in the mountains. I need to be in the wild places because Southern Ontario is certainly not a wild place by any means. Mm. And there was the draw of that. And that led, led post university to my girlfriend and I living, you know, moving out here and now my wife and, you know, we've, uh, we've built a life out in arguably the wildest place in our country. <laughs> That's awesome. And, um, and then the the storytelling and the and the TV. How did uh, how did you move into that? Were you were you guiding or what were you doing? Yeah, guiding was one of my first jobs that I got when I was up here. Um, you know, it was it was not 
easily had. I applied to every outfitter here and every one of them turned me down in the Yukon because really? I had zero I had zero experience. Uh-huh. And I didn't know how to, you know, pack a horse or do do any of that. It was just this kid that wanted to hunt and wanted to learn, but no one was willing to give me the shot other until I ended up working in this clothing store because I wasn't going to leave the Yukon. I wasn't going to tuck my tail and head back home to to mom like like so many, you know, so often can happen when things don't go your way, mm-hmm. right? Um, so the tenacity was there to stick it out and to the point where I was in a men's clothing store, which is actually hard to believe um, right now when I look back on it. But apparently I was pretty desperate to stick it out. Yeah. <laughs> and But that was also the, the catalyst to me getting into the hunting world because this guy walked in with a camouflage jacket one day and I st- struck up a conversation with him and it turned out that he was an outfitter in the Northwest Territories, which is the territory right beside the Yukon. And he, uh, but he didn't have horses. So it was all backpack hunting. Mm. So I, uh, you know, that was where I could find myself. I said, listen, like, I don't know anything about horses because I'd already been through the process with all these guys. And I knew my, you know, I knew my downfalls at that point. And I said, I don't know anything about horses, but if you want to put a backpack on me, I can do and go wherever you need me to go. And that's, you know, I got the job and that's where it all started. Really? How many people did he have working for him at the time? Uh, probably a dozen or so. Okay. And and on that on that first uh, opportunity, what kind of, uh, what, what were you hunting at that point? What was the so, season? So, yeah, like? I, was a, I was a packer. So I was basically a Sherpa yeah. for a rich fellow that could afford a sheep hunt. So I sheep carried hunt. my gear. Whoa, that's, that's, ca- <laughs> that's steep. Yeah. All you got to do is say sheep hunt, and I'm thinking that's super steep right there. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely they're in the mountains and it's it's uh yeah it's not it's, everything's on your back so that was the style of hunting that I started with so starting at the sharp end of the sword really is uh, has what has allowed me or kind of broke me into what you know big game hunting at the you know at the highest end is really like so yeah I was a Sherpa and I just carried my gear and I carried his gear. And we, and then the guide was with us. And so there's three of us and I was just kind of trying to take it all in and, you know, learn from the guide as we went along. Yeah. So the, uh, in, in your fitness, you had retained your fitness from hockey and, and you were just hard nosed, ready to go. Uh, no matter how heavy it felt, you were going to carry that load. <laughs> up, that's up that's pretty much the way it, the way it turned out yeah. too, is, uh, some, but you know, coming back, coming from hockey, you know, it's not a, you're never carrying, it's not the same. Yeah. yeah. It's explosive. It's, you know, so it's just a completely different physical experience than the, you know, what mountain environment, cause it's just, or, or the endurance world. Mm-hmm. But I was always a, a runner kind of, I used to stay fit that way. Um, and being lighter, the endurance thing was quite easy for me. So that transition was was good into the mountain environment because for me, it's I believe the best body for the mountain environment is one that is lean and you know you know must, very lean muscle mass mm-hmm. with the ability to have high endurance and just go day after day after day and grind it out um, where that explosive power isn't necessarily needed. So it was a bit of a transition there for sure. But I think fortunately for me, I had just the right the right body type. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that really allowed for it to be able to, for me to be able to maximize what my actual genetic potential was. What were these other guys like the, like the, the one that gave you the opportunity and the guide and the, and the, and the sport, you know, what, I mean, there's a, there's a serious fitness level that goes along with, with a sheep hunt where you're going in on foot. So are they, are, are you, are they keeping up with you because you've got a heavy backpack or like, are they all monsters and animals as well or no they're def like i mean hunts have to get tailored to basically to the yeah, client right right and the the clients and generally speaking in that area the client was certainly a fitter type client because they're choosing to do the backpack hunt versus a horseback hunt or you know something yet really horses are the main means of transportation when it comes to uh, to sheep hunting, unless you're just flowing in right into a mountain lake and you're going to be hiking. But, you know, no matter what, if you're sheep hunting, whether you have a horse or not, you still have to, generally speaking, you've got to do some level of activity, For sure. uh, especially in the Yukon. Wow. And, uh, and so how long did this, this first opportunity last for you? It was just for one year. It was like, for, not for a year, but for a hunting season. Mm -hmm. So August, September, and uh, into October, so kind of, I flew into the mountains and didn't come out for two and a half, three months. And it was, and it was, a, it was a crazy experience for a kid that grew up in, you know, heavily, what we would consider a heavily populated area in Canada. And then to fly out into the mountains for two and a half months and not, you know, just you're, you're in it. And the only means of transportation was a super cub uh, airplane. So he would fly in from base camp into the mountains and then, you know, 10 days later you would come out or maybe you wouldn't come out. There was times when I got just left in the mountains because the next client was coming in. So yeah, the first, I was, it was definitely, it was trial by fire here. My first season, um, 20, 26 days without a shower type thing. And yeah, it was not what I was used to. Right. Right. So it was, it was a great experience. But it was also an experience that I knew that this was not going to be my path of, um, of choice for a long-term job. So that was, there was, uh, there was definitely some understanding and some learning on that, on that front as well. So where do you go from there? I mean, that, uh, first of all, were, were you successful that season? Did you, did, were there some kills and, and pack outs? And yeah, no, I mean, we were very successful. It was a great area so remote that um yeah the rich in game the outfitters great outfitter so he was dialed in so yeah there was a there was a lot of kills it was a lot of heavy packs um definitely a lot of a lot of miles put on so it was successful in a number of different ways but the most you know for me it was a personal success because i just had never experienced such things and it set the foundation for, you know, a lifetime of adventure and, and what I expected from myself. Hmm. So when you, uh, when you're back in the mountains and, and, and it's really tough and you're like, well, this is pretty awesome, but I, this is not the way I want to make my, my living. Did you have like, it, when you're talking to the other hunters and the guides and the, everybody else about other types of hunting or, or I don't know, did it, what, what was kind of, what was the the fire that was lit there? Uh, what did you think that you might, you know, use that as a springboard for? Really, I I don't know that I was looking at it as a springboard 
for anything other than I knew that mountain hunting was the passion. Mm -hmm. Like it was, if, if it didn't involve mountains, um, then it was just a, a recreational activity for lack of a better term. It was for fun. Like if I go goose hunting when I'm back home, it's fun, but I'm not serious about it mm -hmm. because there's no physicality and there's, for me, it's about pushing my mind and my body in this natural environment in the pursuit of, you know, the most sought after animals in North America. So that's where, you know, that's where it, it has always been for me since that first, since that first time. Mm -hmm. And it's, it still is today. So now the, the physicality part is, has changed as, as I've, as the years go on and as I've gotten fitter and mentally stronger. So that's where, you know, that's where the, really the change has been, but, and now it's, it's still fun. And I enjoy, I enjoy taking other people out and taking my father and my son. That's where I get the real pleasure now, because I don't feel that the, the physicality of mountain hunting is not what it was when I was less fit. Let's put mm -hmm. it that way. So it's interesting because a lot of people, you know, as they would, would age, they would say, you know, my best days are behind me. I'm, I was, you know, when I was in my 20s or my 30s, I was a real animal. And now, you know, the physicality might be a little bit different. I've backed off a little bit, but you're saying exactly the opposite. You're saying that you're the fittest of your life now. And no, I'm not, I'm not the fittest of my life. It's just, I've done moved on to other sports that were far harder and far more difficult than any mountain hunt that I have ever done to date. So it's still, so now that is my point of reference is adventure racing is these Arctic ultras that you, that you talked about. Those are the, those are my points of reference as far as difficulty goes. Yeah. And it is so difficult to replicate that in the mountain environment especially when you're with other people. Right. Yeah, I would um, imagine. So that's, that's the reference. <laughs> finding, just finding hunting partners, you know, for, for certain, you know, I mean, I don't hunt like you do, but we do go elk hunting in the Rocky Mountains, and it's very physical. I mean, extremely mm -hmm. physical. I don't know about as physical as what you're doing, but it's plenty. It's plenty. And as soon as you think it might possibly get easier, it only gets harder. And, I mean, to the point of, man, once, once we kill one, it's going to be easier. You know, but then nope. There's the pack out, and it's yeah. it's way yeah. harder. And um, but but I just kind of wonder, um, you know, finding partners for some of these hunts can be challenging because you've got to find somebody that's ready to do it, like like you want to do it. Have you uh, been able to? I mean, you're also, but you're in a in an area where everyone is pretty hardy and uh, and wants to do these kind of things. But is it is it tough to find somebody that can that can go at the level you want to go at? Well, really, it's there's only been um, two guys that that what, if I'm doing a hard hunt, what what is considered would be considered a hard hunt. Um, like last year, we, well, I mean, my wife and I have I've hunted from my front door a couple of times because I want I'm trying to add more challenge. I'm mm -hmm. trying to get I'm trying to get the difficulty experience the adventure racing experience into the hunt. And, and so I have to look often to make it more challenging. Mm. And sometimes that allows, um, that allows my, the guys that I work with 
to maybe be able to use ATVs where I'm say running. Yeah. Um, so there is a little bit of that, but to answer like to the question about, is it difficult to find partners? It's really, I have to tailor the hunt to, to be able to, and now to be able to film the hunt. Mm-hmm. So right. it's, it, it's, that adds a different level. So the, the fellows that I'm with, if we're trying to do a hard hunt also have to, have to be fit, but I have to be able to tailor it so that we can actually still film it. Mm-hmm. What are the um, most challenging things to deal with? I mean, battery charging and storage and all that stuff. I mean, we have to deal with that, no, that on the ocean. Yeah, but. the batteries and the storage are not an issue. It's really weather, mm-hmm. right? It's it's rain. It's that it's that humidity factor when it's just hovering around the freezing mark, just a little bit above and it's raining. That's those are always challenging situations just for the cameras. Do you think that that filming has made you a better hunter? Like filming the hunts? It's definitely made me a better hunter because it's it's actually I've, I hunt a lot more than I would otherwise. Mm. So once you be once you make this uh, a job, now all of a sudden there's a different requirement of time spent in order to be able to achieve the the goals, right? So I think that it's just like any other sport, it's time spent in the field. Mm-hmm. It's time, whether it's, you know, on the football field or the hockey rink, it's just ice time in the hockey realm because this is what I'm into with my kid, especially with my son now. Um, it's about how many hours do you spend on that rink? How many hours do you spend on the field for doing whatever sport you're doing? And that's, you know, it's more hours out in the mountains. is just going to make you a better hunter. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. Yeah. You know, we have a, a TV show that's... um you know, about saltwater, inshore saltwater fishing. And when I first started, you know, going after bonefish and tarpon and permit and these, these fish that are extremely challenging, you know, we're being so incredibly quiet with the boat and our feet on the boat and we're, we're just approaching these fish and it just seems like it's super, super hard. And it is super hard. And then, you know, one day I was, we were filming the show and we find the fish and we have another boat following us and, you know, there's the cameramen are, are, their feet are loud in the boat and I can hear it from my, my boat. I'm like, man, you know, we, we got to be quiet, you know? And, uh, and then we start to, to engage on these fish and they're like, Hey man, um, you know, we can't really get a good shot this direction. We really need you to come from the other direction. And this is a wild animal, right? Like it's a, it's a bonefish or a permit or a redfish or some very difficult fish. And so we were like, well... Uh, I guess we can try to go all the way around this fish and maybe he'll be there. And in this, per- in this first situation that I'm thinking about, we did make it all the way around. We slowed down. We, the fish stayed where they were for the most part. We went all the way around, in which we would never do this on a regular basis. 
and then we come at them into the sun so that the sun's on our face and everything and they can see they can see us nice and and they're like okay now this is going to be perfect now catch them and we actually did and i just thought at the end of that day i thought man there was a day when it would have been very 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 challenging for me to have ca- caught that one fish under the best conditions with no one else following just one person in the boat, just going in there nice and easy. And now I'm being asked to do this on cue with the light at the right direction, no matter what the weather conditions are. And it's like, well, if you want to make a great TV show, this is how you have to do it. And I would imagine that it's a lot the same in the, in the hunting that, you know, it's like, okay, you're trying to get this moose or sheep or whatever. And it's like, but if we shoot it this direction, I mean, we can't see the thing out there. Like, so if you really want to do this, we got to get a lot closer. And that's something you would never be asked to do, I'm sure. I'm sure you've encountered plenty of these kind of situations to where you're, you're being asked to do something or the, or the cameraman is saying, man, it would look so much better if we could get closer or from over there or from over there. Is there any way we could do that? And you're like, well... Maybe I don't know. Do you have those? Do you have those things? Because yeah, the way no, you, your here, thing is I'm shot. I'm sitting here smiling, and, <laughs> and it's very interesting that you're encountering. We're encountering the exact same thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think that as you're as you get better at your craft, you figure out these these ways to 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 just get it done and get it done as best you can for the viewing audience. Um, and I think that if you weren't as good at what you do, you just wouldn't get it. Like you wouldn't get the shot. Mm-hmm. Um, if you didn't, and I'm not, I'm not super familiar, but you just, you just explained to me how you hunt fish. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same. Like, I mean, it's you're the same. hunting fish like where I'm hunting sheep or moose. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. Except they um, can't smell you, <laughs> which makes it a little easier in yeah. some situations. But they can probably see you well. Oh, they can, can see they you. The water's perfectly clear. Like right. imagine the clearest water that you see, you know, on a in a in a summer summer spring creek up up in your area, and that's how clear the ocean is, and it's mm-hmm. it's perfectly clear, and they can see really really well, and so they they do see you, and more more than that, they hear you approaching, you know, with their lateral line and everything like that. The hearing. So is you, that a, is that a problem? It's not so much a problem because they hear boats all the time. No, no. Like this it, is, it, you know, usually we'll go into these areas that are kind of back areas, which would be quiet. People don't run through there generally. And we'll, we'll push the boat along with a, with a push pole or, or maybe in some situations we might use a trolling motor, but you're trying to go through there as quietly as possible. And every time that, that push pole nicks the bottom and touches and the bottom's going to be made out of you know hard hard rock for the most part and so the push pole makes an audible kind of sound when you when you push it no matter how how quietly you're trying to be and we'll try different foots on the push pole that are made out of softer material or harder material to try to to try to make it go a little little quieter but for the most part the the sense that a that these fish have of their lateral line and the way that they can feel vibration in the water would be akin to like a, 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 a moose or, a, or an elk or, or anything that you're hunting a deer would smell you, right? So right. like you've got to be, you know, you've got to be paying attention to the wind. We're paying attention to how loud are we going in there. We're paying attention to a shadow going over them because if a shadow goes over them, it's over because their number one predator is from above. Right. right. And so that if it's the shadow from your 
from your fly line going over them or it's a shadow from the push pole, you know, and you can cast a long shadow, you know? And so uh, if that happens, that's just like getting winded, you know, right. it's just over. And, and you yeah. get better and better and better at, at um, uh, approaching them in a way that, you know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna scare them. But then you also have to have really good light. So the light tends to need to be at your back so that you can see these fish in the water which presents kind of a challenge. That's like, well, we want the wind to be in our face so the, so the animal can't smell us as we're, as we're approaching them, right? You wouldn't approach the other way because they're gonna smell you and you never see them. We wouldn't go into the sun because we can't see the fish in the water. There's glare on the water, we can't see it, but with the sun at our back, we can see it perfectly, right? right. So it's, it's it, you know, there are a lot of similarities to it. That's one of the reasons why I, I liked it so much was because I, I grew up kind of hunting a little bit, nothing, nothing big game, but there was this feeling of hunting. And I always liked fishing a little bit better than hunting. And I'm like, well, this is the, this is the combination of both of them. This is like hunting yeah. and fishing. Nice. So I don't know. That was, that was, uh, that's kind of how we do it. But you, you know, the way that, you know, you're, when you're hunting a big game animal, like I'm only on my, maybe my fifth year of elk hunting now. So I'm, I'm a real novice white belt at it, but I've learned a lot. <laughs> I've learned that they have an incredible sense of smell and they can smell you from a long way away. And, and if you don't do it right, you're not going to be successful, you know, so there's their ways. But then when, when you're being asked to do it for the camera or you're trying to, maybe you even have envisioned this shot in your head, like nobody's ever gotten this shot. And so in order to get that, the cameraman's going to have to be 50 feet from this animal when I shoot it or something. And it's like, right. okay, how are we going to pull that off? Because there was a time when you were first starting where you couldn't get 300 yards from one of these animals before they would see you, you know? And as you get better and better and better and know the land better and the wind better and the weather better, you get better at approaching these animals. And then you can actually pull these things off like that were previously impossible. And that's what I ask. That's why I ask about, did, do you think that filming the show has made you a better hunter? Because those are the things that I think about as far as how much it's made me a better fisherman is there's just all these challenges that are being overcome that one, I would never do if we weren't filming a TV show. No way. Yeah. Like, why would you do that? <laughs> you don't yeah. want to pole around a fish. He's going to swim away. And so I don't know. It's made me, it certainly made me better, but I just kind of wondered if you had had the same experience, which sounds like you have. Yeah. I think that um, it makes you, it makes you better, but it also, for me, it has also opened my eyes to what I can get away with mm, yeah. when I previously thought that I couldn't. Right. So, um, and that's, you know, I still, whenever I've, you know, I've hunted with guys that, you know, not for a, a number of years, but guys that are trying to be so quiet and not making distance on, say, on a moose in the rut when you, you know, because I've, I've done it all. I've had to close the gap with three guys and I know we're breaking branches and I know that, and then you still get that gap closed. And so it really identifies to me um, in different situations, but you got to know what that situation, know what the animal's doing is really understanding the animal mm -hmm. and the location that they're in, how much pressure they've got. There's all the nuances that go along to these things that, that yeah, you don't get unless you've got time in the field. And I think that that's, and you, when you have a camera with you, it's uh, it's an added level of uh, of something. It definitely changes. <laughs> how many how many people um, 
you know, when I was watching some of your shows, you, you, you sometimes you would have as many as three people on camera, you and two others. Uh, and then how many, what, what does your team look like? Uh, do you have just one cameraman or two cameramen that go with you? Or? So I've always been running uh, two cameras mm -hmm. in the field. Um, you know, one would be a photographer main position, other videographer, and then the, uh, the photographer also would do uh, backup b-roll mm. type shots okay so and then uh so so you you get started in the hunting and and it turns into the or television show at some point but where did the where did the adventure racing come in what was the what was the start of that yeah so I've, after after realizing that my whole hunting the the guiding was not going to be my career um i i was in university uh, and college for um law and criminology so i came out and i was uh, a member of the royal canadian mounted police policing was the, the the destination and so i was a police officer for a number of years and during that time um i was also uh i used to it was always about the outdoors mm -hmm. So I used to mountaineer, um, you know, I've climbed Mount McKinley or Denali and Mount Logan and uh, big wall climbing. And I, so I started out in really the, the adventure. I needed the adventure, the adrenaline mm -hmm. um, in the mountains. So that's kind of where I started out. And then this, this race, and I was always using running as a tool to stay lean and to, to be able to move through the mountains quickly. Um, so yeah, this race came to the Yukon and the city of Whitehorse called me up and said, would you put a team in? So that's where it all started. Um, and my wife is a, an amazing endurance athlete. You know, she's got the, the Canadian 100K record. Wow. So um, we've always been into endurance sports. Uh, and then adventure racing was just a natural, we, natural progression um, because I wouldn't say that I'm uh, I was ever amazing at any individual sport. Mm -hmm. Um, where I found my, my place was all of these different sports, put them together. And then now all of a sudden, wow. Okay. Yeah. Now Plus, all of a sudden I'm, I'm a, I'm an athlete again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Plus other things like navigation and, and so many other things that go into the adventure racing. And for people that don't know about adventure racing, you know, it can, it can be, anything from from running to cross-country skiing to kayaking to canoeing to i mean you can have any manner of adventure racing right and you can have have uh like you're gonna cross this i mean i know that the way they do it like there's adventure races in florida and you'll run or you'll be on foot a part a, a part of the time and then you'll be in some sort of a boat either a raft or a canoe for part of the time or a kayak and then you'll be in in on a bicycle for part of the time and that can be like an adventure race but you can do all different kinds. I, I, I have this Navy SEAL friend of mine, and he just did this adventure race where he, uh, um, well, he's done a lot of different adventure races, but his latest thing was uh, rowing across the Atlantic Ocean, which wasn't really an adventure race. It was a straight-up rowing uh, thing, but the adventure racing kind of led him into that, and uh, right. uh, it's just kind of interesting. So on this first race that you do, what are what are the uh, what are the disciplines that that yeah, I think the, well, the, that race, I think it started out with a, a paddle of like, um, I don't know, 300 kilometers or 250 kilometers. Mm -hmm. So whatever. Um, so yeah, it, the, but the main disciplines in adventure racing are biking, paddling, and running. Mm 
um, and then map and compass navigation. Those, those really, you pointed it out, would be the three main disciplines. And we used to specialize in uh, expedition style races, which are 400 to 1,000 kilometer long, right? So usually our races would be four to, you know, six, 10 days. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, just, and once that clock starts, it doesn't stop until you cross the finish line. And, and it's a team sport. So you cross the finish line as a team. So you better be a good teammate and, or, or you're going to be very unsuccessful really quick. Yeah, that, that's, that's very interesting there about being the good teammate. As far as some of the re- adventure races that, that you do, um, are you, do you have to stay on a certain race course or is it like you got to get to point, you know, from point A to point B, however you might get there. And that, that's based upon your map and compass spill, skills and that's based upon your navigation and maybe you take the wrong way and it takes you a little longer or maybe you take a little more direct route and it's, it's way more challenging. It, are they like that? Is that what you're encountering? That's exactly how yeah. they are. Yeah. It's, it's all about navigation. Um, you know, if you have, you've got fitness navigation, are, are down and you have great team that has the ability to bike paddle and run um at the at the highest end and then your navigation is crap well all of a sudden <laughs> you're you are not going to find yourself in the top you know the top five or top ten because you're going to have gone the wrong direction for hours uh-huh. and i've absolutely done that in the past are there any electronic devices allowed or is it all no yeah. no um, generally speaking, I do believe that there's been some races in Europe. I was never part of them that they allowed GPS, mm-hmm. but for the most part, uh, no. And so from the adventure racing, um, you, you have your sight set on the Yukon Arctic ultra 430 miles in the dead of winter. That's what it said on your bio. Tell me about that race. Yeah, that's, um, that was a race that, uh, you know, when I look back on it, really, I look back on it fondly, but at the same time, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life in that I wasn't, the intent was not to, was not to just complete the event, right? The intent was to win the, win the race. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, some of that gets, gets lost, um, in these kind of endurance, endurance sports, uh, because when you're looking at those lengths, they're just daunting in and of itself. Yeah. And then, and then you put the element of, you know, of race into that. And now you're going to take, you're going to look at it differently and you're going to take more chances. You're going to do things a little bit lighter. And that's kind of where I, I was at with that race. And that's what also made it so challenging, especially in the temperatures that it got down to. Uh, there was like six checkpoints or something over the whole race course. So, you know, kind of every hundred kilometers, there would be a, a place that, you know, a wall tent in the middle of, you know, middle of the bush that there would hopefully be a stove that was, was warm. Um, and, and that was not the case for me in a couple, couple situations during that event. So, you know, it was too cold at the end of the race for the, race staff to even get out to set up the wall tent what kind of temperatures are you talking about here uh, pardon me what kind of temperatures are you talking about so i know for a fact that because i've lived in minus 50 so (laughs) i know it was minus so in fahrenheit i know that 
at one point in this race, late in the race, it was minus 58. And, and it, you cannot stop. Like if you, if you stop, this is, this is your temperatures that you take your mitt, your hands out of your mittens for five seconds and you, you had better be getting them back in like, and then it takes you so long to bring those hands back to life. Like you're, you're right on the edge of, of freezing because your body is so depleted, you're dehydrated. Everything is compounded at those temperatures. Sure. Even on the best of days, even if you just walk out of your house. Mm -hmm. Now this is seven, six, seven days into a race where I'm like hallucinating during this event and you just have to be, it takes every ounce of energy just to be able to make sure that you don't freeze your fingers. Like just make sure that you don't take your hands out of your mitts for, you know, for very long and, uh, and knowing how long that is. Right. And then how long it's going to take for you to get feeling back in those fingers before you can use them again and feel comfortable about taking them out again. So if you get water, like, cause you obviously have to drink. Yeah. That's what and, I was going to ask you. And the I mean, water I mean, is, it's directly next to your skin. Have to be. I mean, it, or, will it, even I a negative 50, it, will it, will it stay? I mean, can you keep it liquid? You can, but you have to have, so I would have my water bladder next to my, up. so I had a, a thin shirt mm -hmm. and then the water bladder goes next to, basically next to your skin and then all your layers come on top of that. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to keep your hose inside your, so every time you want to drink, you have to zip, 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 four layers of clothing, pull your hose out, quickly drink, and then blow all the water back into the bladder, put it back in, zip, 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 get your hands back in your mitts. And it has to be done almost, almost that quick um, because your hands then take, then take like a half an hour to get back warm enough again and you can't, once you freeze your fingertips, you're, it's all over. Yeah. What do you, what do, you do when, um, you know, you've got a, a standard water bladder, I don't know, maybe 64 ounces or, or something, and that's going to last you a certain amount of time. Maybe that's the 100K to get to the next station. I don't, I don't know. But what do you do when you need more water? Like you, you're going to have to get to one of those stations, melt something? Or what do you do? Yeah, so if you get – so that's how I had – I had figured it out. I should be able to do hundred K on a bladder of water, um, two liters. Yeah. Two and a half liters, mm -hmm. three liters of water. Um, I should be able to do the hundred K in that, in that. So, but when it doesn't work out that way and there isn't a, <laughs> there isn't a checkpoint that's set up. Well, now, now this is where the world gets, gets real, <laughs> gets real difficult real quick. Um, because I was racing and I, I don't want to stop to, you know, build a fire ideally, but when you're out of water, you're out of water and you don't have a choice and you have to save enough water to be able to get the snow to, to melt at those temperatures. The snow is so dry to try to melt, um, melt the snow. Often it'll just start to burn. Mm. Like it, it goes, it, it immediately evaporates. Yes. So you have to keep a little bit of water just to be able to get, the snow, like, and then use a little mix, bit of snow, mix to snow get, and mix, mix it that up. dry snow with water. Right. Wow. So you can't, 
you can't completely deplete your water supply. Otherwise it'll take forever. And so these are all little things, nuances that you need to know about, you know, doing what I do. And so having to melt, so you got to get a fire going, you have to have a little pot or you have a little stove, but at minus 50, your stove no longer works because, and this is, this is one of the, the things that was really scary about this race for me is I was, you know, into day, into day six, I guess it was the checkpoint wasn't there. I knew I had to melt, I had to melt snow for water and I needed sleep. I was really counting on this checkpoint. Nobody there. I'm coming off of this mountain down into a valley. And at those temperatures, like there's no wind, like there's nothing moving. And I could see that there was a problem from miles away because I knew like smoke should be rising out of this tent down in this valley. And I didn't see it. And it, I knew it was not a good scene. All I was hoping for was that the guys in the tent had let the fire die out, which you don't do. Like mm-hmm. I was hoping that they had let it out. Cause I was getting there early in the morning. Maybe they had slept through the night and they were warm in their sleeping bags and they let it die. But I, I knew that that's not the situation, but I wanted to believe that. So I get down there and there's no tent, there's nobody there. So I think, okay, well maybe I need to go another 10 K down the, maybe they didn't set it up in the right place because I know how to navigate and I know it should be right down in this river Valley. And so it wasn't there. I figured, well, maybe they set it up 10, 10 K or so down and I just couldn't see the smoke. So I continue on hours later and now I'm realizing like, there is nobody coming, man. Like there is nobody coming. You're running out of water. You need food. And this is, this is a problem. So I got my, cause I have, you have to carry or I, you tow everything in a sled mm-hmm. behind you, all the gear that you need to survive for a situation like this. Like there is no, you, you have to have everything to be self-sufficient for this exact scenario. And I pulled out my sleeping bag, laid it on top of my, my sled and I crawled into it and my stove, I went to, to start my stove up and it fired up. And then five seconds later, it, it died because the ibuprofenol, butane mix, propane, whatever, it gelled up. And at those temperatures, it just is not going to work. So the next, so being, you know, hallucinating, maybe I wasn't hallucinating at that point, but certainly not on the top of my game by any means. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought, okay, I'll bring the stove into my tent, warm it up, get, and then, you know, maybe, or sorry, not my tent, my sleeping bag, because I didn't have a tent, bring it into my sleeping bag, warm it up next to my body, and then I'll use, you know, have a sleep, maybe a half an hour later, I can pull it out and I can get things going. Well, I fall asleep and, and what I didn't do because I wasn't completely, completely cognizant of what I was doing is I didn't turn it off. Oh, no. so it died. I didn't turn it off. I bring it into my sleeping bag and I fall asleep. And then this thing, once it heats up, it starts, it starts going off. Now it's filling my sleeping bag and I'm looking out of a hole. It's literally the size of a quarter. That's what you're breathing yeah. out of. 
to, and, and now I've got my sleeping bag with me inside it is starting to fill up with, you know, propane or, you know, with gas. And luckily I woke up and so I start, I can hear it going off. So I start trying to tear my way out of this sleeping bag and you've got it sucked up so tight and you have to find the cord and, and that in of itself was, you know, so I tear out of the sleeping bag and now I'm like, holy crap. So I think, okay, well, let's start the stove. So I put this, put the stove out, fire it up and not 15 seconds. And it, <laughs> and it gels up again immediately. And now I'm, I'm realizing, okay, I'm in trouble here. So I got to get warmed up. So I need it. So I packed up all my stuff and I needed to, I figured, okay, hike for, you know, run for a couple hours, get the blood moving again, and then go start a fire. And as the, you know, the heat of the day um, warms things up to a, a balmy, you know, minus 50. Um, and that's, uh, that's what I had to do. So those, that was the most challenging portion of that event for me. And eventually, um, guys, the organizers came down the trail later in that, later in that day. And I was just like, at this point, I was like, I don't even know if I want to talk to you guys. And, uh, yeah, they said their snow machines wouldn't start and they couldn't, uh, they couldn't get them, mm. they couldn't get them going. But so that's just how racing goes though. So you end like, up finishing that race? Yeah, I finished the race. Um, and that's the interesting thing. I was in, you know, I was in first place the, throughout the whole event. But in those, you know, in the Yukon, in those remote locations, you don't know where you are. You don't know where the competition is. So there was always this level of pressure behind me that at any time this guy, you know, the second place guy, the guys, the, not just him, but the guys that were behind, they could be, you know, on my, on my butt you know, right now. And, you know, it's not like you're going fast. So, and you always feel like you're going slow, slow because you are, you know, 600 or 300 miles into a race, like you're going slow. And, now, and then it's just a matter of, are you going slower than the next guy? Right. And so, at what point is he going to catch you? So just to be clear, what, what, how, what's your main, are you skiing like cross country skiing or running? No, or, running. You're just running. Yeah. Wow. And what kind of footwear are you wearing in negative 50 to be running 300 miles, 430 yeah, so, miles? Yeah. So it's um, like Gore-Tex shoes. I use Gore-Tex running shoes. And I had a pair when it got really cold, um, like minus 40 and colder. Then I have a pair of over boots that go over top of these shoes and they have a rubber rand that goes underneath your foot. And it's just, it's basically what I used to use for mountaineering. Mm. Um, up in, you know, 20,000 feet, you, you know, you have these over boots over top of your, just over top of your mountaineering boots. Mm -hmm. So basically it's the same thing, just an insulating layer that uh, helps keep your feet from freezing. As long as you're moving, you're good. Really? The problem at, is when you stop moving. I mean, at negative 30, you can just be wearing a pair of running shoes out there running through the snow? Yeah, Gore-Tex. I mean, that's incredible. As long as you're running. I mean, by the way, you're talking to uh, most of this audience is in Florida and on the coast. <laughs> so, I mean, this is the craziest story I've ever heard. And, you know, most of these people, when we get a, when we get a cold front, it gets to be about... 
40, not negative 40, but yeah. 40. And, uh, and they're wearing down jackets and, uh, and, and probably over boots. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We just, we just live in different places. Dude, like, I am uh, telling you what though, man, cold weather. I, you know, I lived in Jackson, Wyoming for a winter and, uh, it got to about negative 30, maybe negative 35. And that is, that's serious. I mean, to you, that's, that's a balmy day. Right. But I mean, when you're, when you come from the South and you experience negative 30 temperatures, I mean, I remember, uh, we went to a movie and, um, you know, we're, we're not that familiar with wearing all the clothes that, that you normally wear that for, for that temperature. So I put the car keys in some pocket, right? And so we, we leave the movie and uh, we were the, kind of the last ones out of the movie and the doors shut behind us and I can hear them lock. And then all of a sudden, all the cars start and they, they leave. And so we're in the town square of Jackson, it's negative 30, and we're walking to the car. And we get to the car and I'm like, oh man, I think I got the car keys. I'm checking this pocket. Nope. This pocket. Nope. Unzip this pocket. Nope. This pocket. Nope. You know, I'm wearing like lots of layers and they're in there somewhere. But I just had this feeling. I was like, man, if I can't find these car keys, what, what are we going to do? It's negative 30. We probably would have been okay. But it, it was just like, man, this is no joke. Like negative 30 yeah. is no joke. If you we're going to die on the town square. That's how I felt like I am going to be the, <laughs> the greenest person that has ever died in Jackson Hole. I'm going to, I mean, you know, Jeremiah Johnson would be so embarrassed uh, at this point because I just thought that was going to be it. I thought I was going to die on the town square because I couldn't find the car keys. But, I mean, what you're talking about is so extreme. That is, that is amazing. And you don't, everybody's running no, well, there, it was. There's three different ways to do it. Okay. Run. You could take a bike and do it. And and there's so many like that. The longest that was the longest of of the races. Like they also have a hundred miler mm -hmm. and a three hundred mile, and then there's the four thirty. So you could bike it um, on fat bikes mm -hmm. or run and or ski. Okay. So running is the slowest way to do it. For I, sure. I, I saw a race one time that that was kind of somewhat interesting to me that sounded a little bit like this one. It was in North Dakota and they had something like that. And it had three different ways you could enter. You could just run. I think you could snowshoe or you could ski maybe or something like that. I don't know, but it, it crossed my mind as something that might be interesting uh, only for a, a fleeting moment. But uh, I, I just don't have the experience with the, with those kind of extreme cold. I, I, I mean, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's, and that is it too. I mean, that's the part of the, the secrets to success is it's just like anything else, whether it's mountain hunting or whether it's bone fishing, you have to be in the right place the, to do it. And then you have to hone your craft at it, right? We have people every year that come, you know, that come to the Arctic to do this, this race. And every, almost every year, somebody's losing fingers or toes or feet. Um, it's, uh, yeah. The, it's quite surprising that nobody has died in this event yet. Wow. And I, I know that I know for a fact the year that I did it, if the 10 best runners in the ultra runners in the world had have been there, like there would have been people die mm. because we would have pushed each other so hard. And if you weren't a hundred percent dialed in, then, you know, somebody's, somebody's dying in that situation that, uh, you know, that I found myself in. Right. Wow. 
So that's, it, it's, it's, it's a difficult, difficult race. And that's why it was the hardest race I've ever done in my life. Yeah. Not just the, the physical aspect, but the mental aspect and being, and having to be, you know, having to go and continue to go when every ounce of your body says stop. Yeah. But stopping means dying. Right? In that situation, stop, stopping is, yeah. is really, can be catastrophic. Yes. Wow. So that, I guess, you know, that's where there really was no choice per se. Um, but other lot, there's a number of other races that I've done where, you know, you, you can just tap out mm -hmm. and that, that mental, I call it mental domination is, and there's, I think I see a huge difference between mental toughness and mental domination. Mental domination is a level that there are very few people on the planet that, um, that I'm not saying that they couldn't achieve it, but normally you have to choose. You have to choose such difficulty in order to be able to have the ability to understand how to dominate your mind. Where, you know, you can go out in the backcountry here and you can be you can be tough and suck up a couple of days of rain and snow and it sucks. And you go back to the tent and then you, you know, you don't get anything. And then you just pack up and you go home. Well, you toughed out a few days, right? There's a difference between being tough and then dominating that mind. And there, when you see somebody that has the ability to dominate their mind, they're generally speaking, they're at a bit of a different level. I'm not saying that, I'm not trying to say this arrogantly, but you don't, you know, you look at people that are the, the top of the game, you know, whether it's in business um, or fitness or athletics, whatever, you look at the Elon Musk, that guy, he's going to the moon, or sorry, he's going to Mars. And if anybody doubts, doubts that, just sit back and watch, whether it's his life or whether he's created the, you know, the next generation to be able to do it, right? Um, you've got the, the Michael Jordans, the, the guys that are just going to grind the Kobe Bryans in, in, the, in the sport of basketball that are just going to put in more effort than you can imagine than any professional in that sport can imagine. So these are the, you know, these are the things that I call mental domination. And in that situation for me at in that event, the, and adventure racing and particularly that event, uh, the Arctic ultra is what I feel has given me an edge in life because I put myself in difficult situations. Um, and you just figure out who you are. Like there's, there's no cheating. Like there's no calling time out and strolling, you know, you're, you're on the surf, you know, point break, calling time out, strolling back into the beach, you know, off the big wave. I mean, this is, this is it. So it's a, it's a great place to be. And I think it's translatable to just being able to deal with difficulty in life. So whether it's, you know, business, the business world or, or athletics, I think, um, you know, it. it's a it's a it's a popular thing right now, like talking about mental toughness and there's there's mental toughness coaches and there's people that that talk about mental toughness on social media a lot. And and people kind of yearn for it, I think. And and what you just described there of the mental domination is it, it is like a, a another level. And there are levels to everything, but there are definitely levels to mental toughness and mental mental the the ability to 
overcome whatever for any duration, for any challenge, for any uh, obstacle, there are people that can get to a place to where if they don't do it, they're dying, right? Like it, that's the only thing that's going to stop them from accomplishing whatever it is. It could be a physical test. It could be, it could be like you're talking about Elon Musk, whatever. Um, how do you think that you get there? Because it's not like this one, the one thing that I do know about this is it's not a one-time transformative experience that gets you there. No. So what's it's, your opinion about yeah. that? It's, it's not an opinion. It's I know. It takes years and years of putting yourself in difficult situations. And it's a muscle memory. Is you must, you must push yourself and then learn from that. And then the next time it's like, okay, I can push a little further. Mm-hmm. And then learn from that. And then you get to the point where, okay, I can do a 430 mile race in these kind of conditions. And I know that I'm not just going to do the, I'm not just completing this race. I know I'm going to win. And when you get, when you get there, um, life is really, really easy. (laughs) Like life is really, really easy because it's just, you know that you're going to be okay no matter what comes out of your day-to-day life. Like, I'm, I'm not, and it's, it's, it's just because I've sought it. I've sought the difficulty. The people that seek difficulty, and I know this is that, that popular conversation, because it's true, is because you must put yourself in difficult situations to find out who you are. And often, and at the start, you're not gonna like who you see. Like my first adventure race, my first years of adventure racing, I was not a great teammate because I was the guy that wanted to prove that I was better than the other people on my team. That's not a good teammate. A good teammate is the one that says, Tom, Buddy, I'm hurting, man. Can you take my backpack? Can you hook me on toe? I need a, I, we all have to move faster together. And can you help me out now? That is the best teammate. Because two days from now, Tom, you're going to be hurting. And I'm, and I'm going to be saying, Tom, buddy, give me your pack. Give me your pack. I'm feeling good. Right now, I'm feeling good. Even though you're feeling okay, Give me your pack. Let me help you out a little bit. And we all move together further and faster. Mm-hmm. That's what a teammate is. And when you put yourself in difficult situations and then you do it in a team aspect, wow. You want to talk about business? You want to talk about if you're in the business world, creating the team around you? That's why our television show has done so well is because the other guys that I have and have had with me in the field, it's the mindset that and the culture that we've, that I've created and that we've worked together as a team to capture those difficult shots. Um, It's, but when, yeah, it's all about to take it back. It's all about putting yourself in difficult situations and not being afraid of failure. Mm -hmm. Like failure failure. is the biggest limiting factor for us out here, out, you know, on a day to day, what are people going to think of me? Right. Like if I cared 
that I come off sounding arrogant in this situation. If, if I cared that it, what everybody thought that, oh, that guy's, that guy's a dick because he, he's got mental domination and, you know, and he's, and I don't do the things he does that, so I don't, I really don't care. And I can't care because I want, I believe that everyone can achieve these things, but you have to be willing to do the, to do the work. Right. Yeah. And embrace failure because it's, that's on that path. It's, it's, it, it's a given like you are going Absolutely. to fail. And, and even, even in the race, like that 430 mile race where you finish and that's a success and maybe you even win. I don't know. We didn't even say, did you win? Yeah. Okay. So you win and you finish. So it's successful, but along the way, there's failures all along the way that you overcame to be successful. Right. And that's the real success is like how you deal with these small failures and, and ultimately to get to the place to where you are, are successful. That, in my opinion, that's where, that's where the real rubber meets the road. Like you, everybody's going to yeah, fail. Just how do you keep deal going. with it? Yeah. Just keep going. Yeah. So like at this point, man, you're like a you're like a a, a three stripe black belt in in mental domination, right? Where, <laughs> I mean, I mean seriously, I mean you are going to the to the edge of the extreme. In in my opinion, I don't I've never even heard of a race as as extreme as as what you're talking about, and the stories that you tell are 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 truly amazing, and uh, it required incredible mental uh, ability to continue to do that. Um, where, where do you go from here? Do you continue to try to get more mentally, to dominate mentally more? Or are you comfortable with where you are? Or, or how do you top that? Like, what do you do to top that? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, um, it's very interesting that you asked that question because I'm, I'm literally have been thinking about this the last little while because um, at, at 50, you're clearly... I'm, I'm not getting physically better. Like, you know, your eyesight starts to go, your hearing starts to go. <laughs> and, um, and, it, and it's difficult. It, it's difficult just dealing with those kind of um, natural degressions. Um, you know, your, your body is degrading and there's nothing you can do, but you can feed it the best food that you possibly can. You can get as much exercise as you, as you possibly can. Um, and still be able to function. So those are the things that I, that I do. Um, it's, it's all about, you know, it's about healthy, healthy eating, healthy, um, active lifestyle. So yeah, where do I go to, to beat that on the mental front? Um, I don't, I don't know, but what I, what I find myself really loving right now is I have two young kids. So my goal is to, to create two humans that start this domination at an early age, that start this, start, sorry, start the toughness at an early age. And whether they take it to where my wife and I have, um, it, it's irrelevant, but I really enjoy watching um, my son push himself and, and working with him. And I say my son, because he's older, he's 10 and my daughter is seven. 
and boys and girls are a little bit different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I can really relate to, relate to my son well um, as a man and, and trying to create a man. That's what I'm really, I spend a lot of my time, um, you know, with him. And he's a hockey player. So, you know, we're out on the rink in the front yard. Every morning uh, he gets, he, his alarm goes off at 5 a.m. And he gets up out of bed. We meet down in the gym because I've already started working. I've already, I'm up at just after four and he meets me down in the gym and I'm wrapping up my workout. Then we go out and uh, we go outside and we hone his craft every day. And that's, I really, really enjoy that. Um, And so that's kind of my, that's kind of where I, where I'm happy right now. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah, like today I'm going to go for a four hour run. So I'm not taking my foot off the throttle on, but I'm not, I'm not competing at, at adventure racing at the highest level. I'm, you know, that's not my passion. My passion right now is in my family and, you know, trying to create this atmosphere of love and hard work and, you know, just creating humans that are going to contribute to the society, to, to the world and not be uh, a burden. Man, that's awesome. It really is. It's really, it's really amazing. And uh, my kids are a little bit older. I'm 54, um, and my kids are a little older than yours. I've got a, uh, a 25, a 23, and a 19. And uh, I, I did much of the same. You know, like, like there, is a, there is a point where you, your excitement goes to maybe, maybe you've developed physically or mentally or whatever, and now it's time to pass that on. And uh, it's a real challenge with, with young kids, like especially when you're talking about this mental toughness and stuff like that. It's like, okay, uh, is it mental toughness or, or you just being mean? Like, you know, and yeah. that's what no. they, that's what they, dad, you're just being mean. And it's like, well, you know, maybe, or maybe, yeah. maybe I'm giving you something. I'm giving you the greatest gift you'll ever, you'll ever have in your life. Uh, Tom, I think that, uh, if, if there is an element of maybe you're, maybe you're being mean, I think you are absolutely given the greatest gift because the world is not a nice place because it's not about, you know, all sunshine and roses out there and they are going to compete. Mm -hmm. They, and if you create, if I feel that if I create and which obviously what you've done is you've created a layer of toughness that other kids don't have because, you know, single mom or just didn't, didn't, didn't teach them what, you know, what the father should have been teaching, you know, and if, if the father wasn't around, I'm just, I'm just kind of throwing, or, you know, if it is a, you know, husband and wife and, and they're just, the society is just different. It's just soft. Yeah. And if we can create any level of toughness in our children, then they're going to be able to deal with the failures. And when, if they can deal with the failures, get up and move forward, well, holy crap, they are going to be at a different level than your average kid out there right now. Yes. Um, and when I say, I say average, because there are lots of kids out there that are crushing it yeah. or lots of young people out there, not just kids, but in your case, young adults that are out there that are crushing it. And they, they do have a fire under their ass and they want more. Um, but there's lots that are just content and there always has been, but there's lots to content and 
to sit in mom and dad's basement and play video games. Mm -hmm. Like, and as long as we don't continue to pander to the video game playing 30 year old and feel that that is the, that is the standard at which, you know, society is at. If as long as we don't, we don't or stop pandering to that demographic, then um, we're creating, we're creating humans that are going to contribute. Yeah. And that's the goal. That's awesome. Um, so we're getting close to, to having to wrap it up here, but um, this has been a really amazing conversation. It won't be the last. I'd love to have you on again. Uh, we have so many other things we could talk about. Um, I need to talk about fishing at some point. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Like I know that, I know that this is, is we've kind of, you know, definitely kind of swayed it certainly toward my world, but the fishing world is kind of where I started. I didn't actually get that story. But yeah, I started out fishing and my love of fishing and, um, you know, down what you guys are doing down there. I understand. I don't, I don't completely understand because I know it's really hard to be a really good fisherman in that saltwater world for bonefish. Um, the little I do know about it, it seems very difficult and very rewarding. I'm sure when, uh, when you put it all together, you would love it. And just like, if I came up to see you, you would put some really thick mittens on me so I wouldn't lose my fingers. I'm going to slather you with sunscreen. Yeah. You won't burn your face off, uh, because it is a, you know, just as, just as, uh, as extreme as the cold, man, The, the sun can, can whoop you fast without yeah without any experience with it or, or very much experience and you get down and it's like man whew, i've seen people go down um yeah i did but, an adventure race in utah in the middle of the summer once yeah in moab that'll and do that it. was that was an experience like none other for me mm-hmm. like that heat and dry and the i've never ever put a value on water like i did <laughs> in that race it was it was like it becomes it well it's your life it's you would pay thousands of dollars if you if you had it on you just for a glass of water in yes. those kind of temperatures so um i have a very little experience but you guys live in that kind of all the time and uh yeah much respect same yeah. thing well that's that's the desert and it is drier there than, than Florida, but Florida gets, Florida gets plenty hot. All right. So, so just to end this, uh, tell me what your definition of success is. Well, I look at success, uh, broken down into three, you know, kind of three main areas. And so the first one is to be successful. You must have to have, you must be healthy. You must have your health in check. So whether that's, you know, eating right, getting regular exercise, it, it doesn't mean doing what I do. <laughs> that, that, that's not what I'm talking about. But um, if you literally, I have this, I have this program. Uh, I don't know if it's a program, but it's more of a, more of a lifestyle that me and a few of my buddies, or I started after a hunting trip because my buddies back home were getting fat and out of shape and we're all getting older. So uh, 10 minutes, I called it just 10 I, minutes of do I the work. I saw those on your, I, saw, I, saw, I was going to ask you those about that. Yeah. And literally, um, that's, it is this, I started this about a year and a year and a quarter ago. And literally it has changed my, my six best buddies from back home, changed their, you know, changed their lives. And 
it's literally 10 minutes of workout, bodyweight workouts per day. You know, I even post it on my stories every day. Mm-hmm. Just, and there's a, you know, there's a bit of a, there's certainly a following than people that are, it's because all it takes is 10 minutes of move your body and it works. So that's to get back to the success conversation. It's you have to have health. And then to be successful, I think that you have to have great relationships with the people around you. You have to have, if you're married, you have to have a great relationship with your spouse or, you know, your children. And these are, sorry, these are all things that, that when you have your health and you have the people around you, a great, good relationships, healthy, happy, loving relationships. Um, it's such a, it's a great place to be. And then the, the other one is uh, you need to have your finances in check. Because if you're trying, if you're worrying about paying the bills day after day, it's a huge stress on those other things, the relationship, and also uh, often people that um, aren't financially financially sound uh, don't take care of their health either. And mm-hmm. um, so those three things, you know, health, relationships, and finances are the foundation of what I believe is success. And then. You know, once you the the last layer on top of that would be you have to have a worthy goal that you're shooting for. You have to be looking toward something that you're moving forward toward, and it has to be worthy. It has to be something that is positive, something that is um, contributing to society or contributing to your family. Whatever whatever that is, it must be a worthy goal. You know, it's not you know the uh, I don't know that. Nicholas Cage movie where he was drinking himself to death. Oh, like, leaving, he had a goal. Leaving Las Vegas. Leaving Las Vegas. Yeah. yeah. He had a goal, and it, but it just wasn't worthy. Nice. Right. Um, he was working hard toward it. You and that was that's that's the difference. It must be a worthy goal that's going to contribute to you, your family, or um, or someone else. And those are those are the pillars of what I believe is success and what makes makes a successful person. That's awesome. And I'm so glad we did this. I really am. It's really great to to get to know you. I hope we run into each other at one of these shows or something in person, and uh, maybe get a little training in. That'd be awesome. I, uh, uh, it's just uh, you, you're just such an inspirational dude with uh, with so much under your belt as far as um, just incredible accomplishments and incredible uh, feats of endurance and and toughness and mental and physical. So, kudos, man. Congratulations no. to you. Thanks, Tom. I really appreciate you uh, having me on. It's been uh, and it's been great. And yeah, hopefully someday we do uh, actually run into each other somewhere in the middle. I hope between so. the Yukon and Florida. I hope so. We'll do this again. I'd love to have you on. We'll talk about fishing more next time. Awesome. Sounds great. Okay. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. See you. Cheers.